Let me just begin here as kind of a tone setter for where I'm going to go. We're going to start in John chapter 14 and verse 6, a very well-known scripture to many of you, I'm sure. The Bible says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And then we'll go to the book of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2. And the Bible says, Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. I want to title my effort tonight, When Truth Speaks to Power. When Truth Speaks to Power. I've asked Brother Merrill to pray a blessing of anointing on on this attempt at a sermon tonight. So let's pray together. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Brother Merrill. Now, I'll explain. You may be seated. I'll explain those two scriptures in, in just a moment. But uh, if, if I may, allow me to kind of contextualize this concept that I'm talking about tonight with an example from the uh, relatively recent history. I'm talking about, remember, I'm talking about when truth speaks to power. In the early 1960s, the civil rights movement was in the forefront of American culture, and I'm not old enough to remember that, but there are some of you here tonight who lived through it, and and I'm sure remember it well. Times were turbulent. It was uh, violence everywhere. It was rampant. People of color were treated then uh, in many places as less than human especially in the South. It was, it was terrible here in the Deep South. And this deep-seated idiocy, as I have labeled it, and ignorance was never more evident, in my opinion, than in November of 1962 in the state of Alabama. That year, in that election, the state of Alabama elected a man named George Wallace Do you remember, does anybody remember George Wallace? This is what's so amazing about that. In November in the general election, he was elected after garnering 96% of the vote. 96% in the state of Alabama. That's huge. That doesn't happen. 96%, nearly the entire state voted for Mr. Wallace to become uh, governor that year. On January 14th, 1963, in his inaugural speech, he made this now infamous statement. And I quote, In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust, and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. The governor of the state of Alabama in his inauguration speech said that out loud to the world. Now I find that shocking, and and you all should find it shocking too, but apparently... It wasn't so shocking then. I couldn't imagine anyone saying that, much less a person who was in such a position of power. That statement uh, lives on in the annals of time today as one of the defining low points of our great nation. It should be noted, however, just for the sake of accuracy, that uh, in true political form, George Wallace did not write that statement. 
as many politicians do, they, it seems like some of them don't have a brain enough to actually write what it is that they want to say themselves. The statement in the entire speech, as a matter of fact, was written by a man named Asa Carter, who uh, really, as I understand it, didn't, didn't even know George Wallace that well, but they quickly became friends after the election to the governorship. This overwhelming political victory was uh, the evidence, was evidence of the power that the old establishment of segregation carried in the South in those times. The force and the power of that mindset in that time cannot be denied. And it was evidence in the horrid way that people of color were treated in those times. And I'm going to clean all this up in just a minute and let, let me just insert a personal note here so that no one could possibly miss the context of what I'm saying tonight. There's no place in this church or in the kingdom, there is, there is no obscure corner where that would be acceptable. If you find yourself struggling with this issue, you got some serious dealing to do with yourself, okay? Now, I'm just as serious as I could be. There's no place for it. And it's, it's not just limited to what we would refer to now as African-American people. It's changed in these days. You know, there's, there's new groups of people to hate. But I can't find any reason, not a single reason, that makes hate acceptable. You can find, you know, new orientations and, and new lifestyles to, to side against these days, but the Bible doesn't make any place for hate. Praise the Lord. But there was another man in those days, a strong man, a man of God, and a man that we now know had a dream. Dr. Martin Luther King, on August the 28th of that same year, 1963, from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, Dr. King delivered the now famous I Have a Dream speech. And I'm sure that all of you have heard it and read it. It was masterful. Sometimes I just listen to it or watch it just for the sake of the, the coolness of how he was. That man was something. He, he didn't seem to me to be a really, uh, I'm going to use a, a silly word here, highfalutin kind of fella. He was just people. He just struck me as he's just people. I'd, I'd like to have a hamburger with him and get to know him a little better. But he masterfully and passionately spelled out the sentiment of his cause. At one point, he, he references the Emancipation Proclamation. He identified the horror of the times. He, he called for clear and concise change from the federal government. But as he nears the end of the speech, speech he makes this statement, and I quote, But there is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our own thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative, pro or creative protest to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic, hei majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. I've watched it and I've heard it many times, and that particular passage has always stood out to me. There's just something about it that has always stood out to me, and I'm sure that you can identify with that. But it's essentially this. That portion of the speech is evidence of the fact that, that Dr. King's platform for change wasn't built on power. Now, it proved to be powerful, okay? 
But the foundation of what that man was about wasn't about power at all. Y'all hang tight. Hang with me. The genesis of his plight was founded not in power, but in a truth that says that all men are created equal and that there is never just cause for discrimination. Dr. King courageously spoke truth to a very powerful power that day. You know, he, he lost his life for it a little later. But his cause never lost. His cause gained ground and eventually won because of its foundation in truth. Think about what we would be talking about today or the way it could have turned out if, if Dr. King had called his people to fight. If, if he had called power to fight power, the result wouldn't have been the same, folks. We wouldn't be where we are today. I'm talking to you about what can happen with, when truth speaks to power. Now, with that in mind, with that concept in mind, let me return to where I started. I chose to read uh, those two passages earlier for this reason, and I suspect that you, you see that there's very little uh, relation between them. But I wanted you to clearly uh, identify with the identity of the two entities. I'm not doing those on purpose, by the way. That's just worked out that way. I want you to identify with the two identities of the two entities that are involved here. The verse from John that, that spoke about, or Jesus is actually speaking there, that, that verse uh, is really, really clear. It's beautiful. It's not hard to understand. It's, it's quite simple. And it's because Jesus, the Jesus that we love and the Jesus that we know and the Jesus that we trust, the Jesus who died for us, the Jesus who heals us, Jesus who gives us joy and peace, he makes these declarations essentially about himself. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. I'm going to focus on that middle portion, and you probably figured out by now, that, that says that Christ is the truth. The verse from Ephesians is slightly more veiled because uh, it contains a statement written by a man being Paul, written to a church, being the church at Ephesus, and he references a devil being Satan. So it's not a direct statement. It's not a, a labeling, but it's something that we can take from the Word, that we can glean from the Word. When Paul said, that the enemy is the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. Now, I'm, I'm not here to, to clamor and talk about how powerful the devil is. I'm here to talk about what can happen when, when truth speaks to power. Just bear with me. What is power? I'm a simple person, and I need things defined for me. Because there's so many meanings for different things. But what is power? Power is simply ability. It's the ability to create or the ability to change, the ability to alter, the ability to accomplish. Whatever it is, it's ability. It's kind of physical. It's ability. What is truth? That's a good question. Glad you asked. When information is true, it means that the information presented is congruent with the facts. Truth reflects the essence or the genuineness of something. Truth is exact. Truth is precise. Truth is accurate. Truth is correct. And that's kind of the way we perceive uh, the context of this passage when, when Christ says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. We, we perceive it in this, in this way. We assume that he's meaning that he is correct and accurate, true. And most certainly he is. But there's a little nugget. If you, if you 
dig in and you find that word that the Greeks wrote for truth, the word is aletheia, as best I can pronounce it, aletheia. And if you study it, you'll find all the usual suspects, Merrill, for t- the definition of truth there. They're, they're all there, just, just the way we define truth today. But then there's this one little footnote. And the footnote says that this word aletheia was used as a, semin- a synonym in those times for the word reality. Used for a synonym, it meant the reality. This is what Christ was and is. He's the reality. He is true in the modern sense. I'm not, I'm not trying to dissuade you from that. As a man, Jesus Christ was congruent with the facts. And he, he was accurate as the man Jesus Christ. And as he walked and talked in the earth, he was precise and he was correct. But as God, things change. The God inside of him is the reality. As God, the, the facts are congruent with him. You see, God's not congruent with any facts. The facts are congruent with the God. You understand the turnaround that happens between the flesh and the spirit there. He is truth itself. He doesn't represent the essence of truth. The God in Jesus Christ was the essence of truth. And that's what Jesus was stating when he said, I am the truth. He is the truth. He is the essence by which truth is later identified. We still together? Y'all still with me? I'm talking about what can happen when truth speaks to power. Now, let's return to the Scripture. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. The Bible says, Then Jesus was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. It should always be noted that Jesus was led up by the Spirit for the purpose of his temptation. It's important that you understand that. Verse 2 says, And when he had fasted 40 days, 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. Verse 3 says, And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, setteth him up on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Hmm. You see a pattern here, folks? Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. I suspect that you see where I'm, I'm going. It's, it's not hidden. We, we've already established that Jesus is the truth, not just after the truth, but he actually is the reality of the truth. The truth is measured by him. He's not measured by it. But I believe it's important that we understand the context of this experience. It's, only, it's important for me to understand it. Maybe I should say it that way. I need to understand this. 
Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit for the specific purpose of being tempted. Now, he had, the Bible says he had fasted 40 days. To say he was hungry, that's some kind of vicious understatement, okay? I fasted a few days in my life. I don't know. Maybe the longest I've ever gone was five, and I was probably trying to go seven then, and I thought I was going to die, you know? Man, a hamburger looked like heaven to me. Forty days, not in the air condition, okay, not in front of the TV, 40 days in the desert. This was the real deal, folks. But if we aren't paying attention, it's, it's likely and at least possible, and I, I found this in, in myself for a long time, to overlook the humanity of Christ in this moment. It's easy to hear you know, the statement, Christ was tempted, and gloss over it by thinking that there really isn't any way that, uh, you know, God Almighty could have actually been tempted by evil. It's, you know, he was God, okay? Let's, can we just be real about that for a minute? I know he was fully man, but he was also fully God, and that means something. It, it must mean something to be fully God. But we read the account and we, we forget that while, yes, he was fully God, he was also fully man, and therefore he had the benefit of the full experience of the temptation in the flesh, meaning that Jesus felt just exactly and precisely how a man would have felt or would feel given those same circumstances, and that is not in any way insignificant. It's very, very, very significant that we understand that. He completely experienced the hunger at that time. Now, I'm focusing on the hunger at the moment because I think it's the easiest one to see. He completely experienced, Merrill, the hunger of that, the fast and the the harshness and the, the elements and the we just can't imagine what it was like. He completely experienced that. And he also completely experienced the understanding that he could snap his fingers and eat something and get out of that mess. He completely experienced the temptation, and that's the part we miss. Because, yeah, he's fully God, but he's fully man. It's even worse than being us because we don't, we don't have the power to fix it. He had the power to be just as comfortable as anybody could ever be. It's harder than what we would, we would be, in my opinion. It's temptation at his best. There's always been a great deal of debate, or, or at least some debate, about the concept of whether Jesus Christ even, even really had the ability to sin. Have y'all ever heard that, okay, I'm the only one, that's okay. I just hear more than y'all do, I guess. <laughs> there, there, there's been some debate about that. Could, because of his God nature, could Jesus have actually sinned? And, and the debate that, the side of the debate that really causes me a lot of trouble is the fact that if he couldn't sin then it somehow cheapened the experience of God being man right y'all see that and this is where I fall and I, I'm not saying that I'm right I'm just saying that I'm probably right this is where I fall on that it's not about I personally believe that Jesus could not sin because the God nature in him wouldn't allow it. He, he's, he's too perfect for that. As if there's some degree. Let me fix that. He's, he's perfect. He can't sin. You can't be too perfect because there are no degrees of perfection. But the God inside the man couldn't sin and would not allow the flesh to sin. But as I have thought about it through the years, I come to the understanding that the whole point is moot because it's, there's, it's not about Jesus passing a test. 
You understand, God didn't need to pass a test. He didn't come here so that we could watch him pass the test. It's not about testing at all. It's about something completely different. It's about providing us with an example. That's the point of the wilderness experience. It's about us seeing God be a man. The whole point. We need it. Let me rephrase that. God knew that we would need in this plan of redemption to believe that he experienced what we experienced. He knew that we would look at the... Let me back up again. He knew that I would need this. He knew that I would need to look at Calvary and at his life on the earth And I would need to have some point to identify with. Because otherwise, it's still just me and a God, okay? And I don't need me and a God. I need him to understand. I got to keep backing up, y'all. I need me to understand that there's a connection between us. That he really did feel my infirmities. That he... He understands what being a man is like, that he would actually know what temptation is. Not about God being tested, people. That's a joke. God is never tested. You can't test God. And truth is this way. Sometimes you hear um, people say, and I've said myself, you know, you hear something good or You see something good on Facebook or whatever your favorite media is, and you say, oh, that is just so true. It's just so true. Man, that's true. But, you know, there's there's no degree of truth. Truth is either true or it's false. Right, Coop? You can't circle them both on the test. What's true is true, and what's false is false. There's no such thing as something that's partially true. Now, you can have contained within a statement or a position a false statement and a true statement and say that the whole thing is partly true, but there ain't no part truth. There's truth and there's false. I really need to get back on track. We also must understand in the context of the wilderness experience, in addition to Jesus' temptation... And the fact that he really, really experienced the wholeness of the flesh in this time. We must also understand that Satan is in his element here. Remember that he is the prince of the power of the air. He's the ruler of this world. This is his specialty, okay? This is the devil's wheelhouse, if there is such a thing. He has the God of of all things in his own mind cornered. God is, quote, at his weakest point to date. He has not been this weak yet. Or so the misguided devil thought. His first two attempts fail. He tries the food. He tries the thing about casting himself down and making the angels catch him. Silly. You can't test God. But then comes this other thing. I feel like as I, as I read this for the, you know, the millionth time as in preparation for tonight, it, it feels like the devil just, he had to go all in on this last one. I mean, those first two didn't work at all. Uh, they didn't get him anywhere. And he's just got to go all in. So he brings him up to this high place, to this mountain where he can see all the nations of the world, so to speak. And he says, Jesus, if you'll just do this one thing for me, I'll give you all of this. Now, what's not written is that that's all he has. You know, he's the prince of the power of the air and the ruler of this world. This is all he's got. He doesn't have any power anywhere else. So he goes all in. He throws the Hail Mary. I mean, it's just, this is my best shot at you, Jesus. If you bow down and worship me, 
I'll make all of this yours. All that is my dominion, I'll make yours. Y'all see that? But listen, does the weak and starving, weary Christ respond in power? Think about what Dr. King did. Modern example for an ancient truth. Does he respond in power? Did he summon a hundred million angels to come and bind the devil in chains and shackles and, you know, pluck him off into some parallel universe somewhere, never to be seen again? He did not. Did he have the power to do that? Could he have done that? He could have just snapped his fingers right and and just annihilated this annoyance. It's not that he didn't have the power, but remember, he's not being tested. This is not about his ability to achieve, to perform. It's not about his ability at all. It's about truth. No, the starving, hurting, hungry Christ responds with an already established truth. It's all about the truth, friends. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Because of this biblical example, it seems to me that power is not most effectively overcome with power for us. Power is most effectively overcome with truth, and that's why all this stuff is in this book that we're supposed to read and understand so we can apply. The truth is already there. The precepts are already outlined. There is no need for our power to be involved. And, and we make a big deal about spiritual power and the power of God. And look, God is all-powerful, and there is merit in spiritual power. But when it comes to this kind of just living, when it comes to temptation and difficulty and struggle, you can't fight power with power. This kind of stuff needs to be fought with truth. We've got to know the truth so that we can apply it. Amen? I'll admit, and, and you know, I'm still living. I'm, I tell Nancy that I think I'm, I'm 37 now, and I don't know what the... Seems like I'm about halfway done. You know, if we go through the averages, <laughs> I'm about halfway finished with this life. Hopefully at least, hopefully it's not any less than half. It is what it is, I suppose. But I, I'm a man, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a country boy. Grew up in the country. I'm a, I'm a red-blooded American male. And it, it has been my uh, MO to respond to most things with power. And that is my failure. And I suspect that it's probably a lot of your failures too. You know, if something comes against me, what I like to do is just bow up and come against it. Right? Y'all don't know what I'm talking about, do you? Uh Uh-uh. Half of you don't. Nancy's shaking her head. I know she doesn't because she's sweet. Vernell, you understand? She's sweet. Sweet doesn't have that in it. And that's good. Because two of people like me can't live in the same place. I'm thankful for my wife. But I've always tried to overcome power with power and in so many things, in temptation and in social struggle. I'll just power through it. I'll just pull myself up by my bootstraps. Thank you, Jesus, and I will just get through this. That's power responding to power. That's two sheep button heads. But that's, it's not effective. It's not efficient. So often this happens in business. I remember years ago, I was, I, y'all have heard me talk a lot about Mr. Thompson. I was in a meeting with Mr. Thompson. We were talking about a job that I was supposed to build in a uh, neighboring parish. I'll leave the, the name of the place out. And I said, Mr. Allen, why am I gonna, not going to build that job? And uh, one of his, the thing that people love most about him, and the thing that I love most about him, that he, he's so good at just cutting right through the garbage and just identify. he just says the truth line, and that's it. You get what you get. And he said, Brian, you're not going to do that job because those people down there don't like you. I said, really? <laughs> that's too bad. 
And I, I looked at him and I said, well, I understand. And he gave me something else to do in another parish. So I didn't lose anything, but I needed to hear that truth. You know, I, I needed to know that about myself. I needed to know what was going on there. And now, I'm not going to fill in the blanks, but there was a good reason for those people not to like me, and I assure you that I was on the side of truth. They didn't like me because they were crooks, and I wasn't. Truth, when truth speaks to power. My question is, how does that work? What, what is the function of truth? Where does the proverbial rubber meet the road? Because this is a little abstract, all of this business is. I mean, it's well put together in Scripture, and it's not hard to find. But, you know, finding that place when you are in a spot in your life and you need to apply a truth to it, not all that easy to verbalize. But let's read again from the book of John, a lot of John tonight. John chapter 8, verse 28 says, Then Jesus said unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall, shall you know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And He that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please Him. And the Bible says, As many as He spake these words, many believed on Him. Then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed. And then this, this phrase, and he says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth shall make you free. That's often misquoted, especially somewhere when I was young, I heard that, it was the truth will set you free. And it's been hard for me to get over that in my mind, but I think I've got it whipped now. The truth doesn't set us free. The truth makes us free. We learn here that the knowledge of truth will cause freedom. It's a cause and effect thing. If you know the truth, then the cause, the, the, uh, the effect of your knowing the truth will cause you to be free. To be free from what? To be free from the bondage that falsehood creates. We'll talk about that in just a moment. The absence of truth in any area is the basis of fear and the root of doubt. The absence of truth in any area is the basis of fear and the root of doubt. What you don't know is almost always what you fear. If you... Um, if you enter a situation and you don't have any knowledge of it, then you are likely to be fearful, and you will certainly doubt yourself. People will see that you don't have any confidence, and there's a good reason you don't have any confidence, because you don't know what you're doing, and that's okay. Don't crucify yourself for that, but understand that the knowledge of truth is a basis of fear and the root of doubt. I need desperately to be able to be truthful with myself about myself. I need to know the truth about me. You need to know the truth about you. I don't want to live in denial. I'm not saying that I haven't ever lived in denial. Lori, I have. But I don't want to live that way ever again. I want to know the truth. Don't shelter me from the truth. I've said it a million times. Just give it to me the way it is, and I'll work through the wreckage with the help of God. We need to know the truth about ourselves. I need to know about me what needs help from other people, and I need to know about me what can help other people. There's good and there's bad, and it's all okay if you're willing to just deal with the truth. Truth, friends, is important. Don't shelter me from the truth. I don't have time to, uh, to really delve into every area of how the truth is intrinsic in our lives in just every spot. 
you can understand, and I'm sure you see that, that it is important. You know, if, if you deal in, in falsehood, if you just don't know the truth, what if you didn't know the truth about how much money you had in the bank? How would that work out for you? You'd probably wind up in jail, right? Because you're not going to buy less stuff than you think. I mean, you're going to buy more stuff. You know, it's just impossible to function as a person without knowing the truth. The truth is so important. You have to know the truth. You have to know about your abilities. I can't touch everything, but I want you to understand these two points. We need to look at two for certain and for sure. We must know. Now, this is in the basis of Christianity in, in, in our attempt to be godly people. You need to know. Michelle, the two Michelles in here, Michelles, y'all need to know the truth about God's intention for your lives. That's the first one. You need to know the truth about God's intention for you. The second one is you need to know, you need to be keenly aware of the truth about the enemy's intention for that same life. Because you see, that is really the why and the road. Where I'm from, there's a road called the Y Road. Ethel didn't live on it. There's a place where you have to decide which way you're going to go. And if you don't believe the truth, if you don't know the truth, if you're not equipped with the truth, then you are likely to go the wrong direction. This is neatly packaged into one verse in John again. John chapter 10 and verse 10. The Bible says this, The thief cometh not but for to steal to kill, and to destroy. I am come. Y'all got it? The first part is the number two here. That's the devil's intention for you. He's come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And ain't none of that good. Here's the number one. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That's the number one. That's God's intention for your life. And that's all good. Right? Listen. We need to expose sin for what it is. Sin is a falsehood. Sin is a facade. And I know it's not always as easy as the spoken word here. But it is what it is. Sin sells you on one result, but gives you a different result. Sin will never give you what it told you it would give you. Never. As a parent, as parents, those of us who have young children, we need to start early, folks. Our kids need sin to be exposed to them by us. Let me read this from my notes so that I don't mess it up. If we don't carefully expose the nature of sin to our kids, then we allow sin the opportunity to expose itself. You don't want sin making its own pitch to your children. You don't want sin making its own, its own pitch to you. But if, if you haven't, if a child doesn't have a parent that will sometimes awkwardly, you know, not all of these conversations are fun. You know, they're not all fluffy. Sometimes they're tough conversations, but you've got to take the facade off of sin. I've got to bring Cole in and say, watch, buddy. I know that this looks like fun. Look, look at the front of it. That's fun and that's pleasure. But wait, let me get my knife. Let me cut this front off so that you can see what's in the back. Because the back's, that's where you're going to be. You're not going to be out here looking at sin. You're going to be in sin. We've got to do that for our kids. We've got to do that for our new converts. You've got to understand that sin doesn't give you what it sells you. But it's never, it's just never presented that way. We must, parents must speak truth to this destructive power.
There's so much about this um, material. I couldn't, I, there's no way that I could have done it all. I'm finishing up, but I want to leave you with this one final thing to think about. There's been a lot of talk about dreaming big and going big here lately. And although it may seem counterintuitive to uh, clue you into this, I am not a natural dreamer. Doesn't, doesn't really happen to me. I, I'm, I'm more of a, I don't know how to explain it. Those of you who know me will know this. I'm more of a doer. I kind of want to be given a dream and say, here, do this. And get my hands dirty and, you know, it's just how I am. I'm not a natural dreamer. But that's okay. I'm learning. I'm dreaming some things. But what is a dream? I mean in its infancy. In the very beginning, what is a dream? A, a dream is just a fabrication of your mind. It's, it's something that doesn't exist in any real form at all. It's just, a, it's just a fabrication. It just happens. It usually starts with some phrase like, hmm, I, I think I could. Maybe if I did this, or maybe if I could do this at church then. It's a fabrication of circumstance. And they're not, let me say this for some of you, they're not all good. Some of us have bad dreams, right? Some of us, when that, when that instant, when that spark happens in your mind, your mind doesn't go the good way. It starts to create all kinds of terrible reasons not to. It starts to create daydreams that are nightmares. Those are called worriers. I come from a family of worriers. My mother is a worrier. She worries about everything. She's a dreamer, but it's, it's negative dreams. It's always the reason, when a, when a worrier dreams, it's always the reasons not to. We shouldn't take that chance because this could happen. Whereas the positive dreamer says, we ought to do this. I think this can happen. Forget the bad dreams, folks. There ain't no sense in them. It's not going to accomplish anything. You're not going to do yourself any good by dreaming up bad circumstances. There are enough real bad circumstances. Don't add to them. That was free. But a dream is the fabrication of your mind. It's, it's just a, a fabrication of a potential circumstance or outcome. I want to encourage you tonight in that moment, and I'm speaking expressly to the, to the young people that are in here. In that moment when your mind says, I think I can, I could sing that song or I could teach that Bible study, I could cut the grass this week at church, that's how dreams start. Don't diminish the value of that first moment because without it, you see, nothing else happens. They all just die after that. But the one that, that you hold on to and cherish. Now, this is my point about the truth and the dreams. The ones that you work on, there will be infinite power to try to stop it. There will be circumstances and people and worriers who will try to convince you that the dream is not relative. The dream is not worth the cost of attaining it. The dream has no use. But what we have to do is speak truth to that power. Because when you start to believe the thing yourself is when the wheels start turning. What about Dr. King? Do you think he believed what he said that day? Is there anybody here who would disagree with me? Dr. King believed what he said. Now, he said he had a dream, and I believe that at some point in his life, it was nothing more than just a thought. It was just the beginnings of, you know, this isn't right. He might have been 10 years old. The way they treat me and my daddy's not right. 
I wonder what would happen if we could X, Y, Z, ellipsis, whatever. It all started with the snap of a finger, the spark in a young man's mind. And don't tell me there wasn't power to try and squelch it. His challenge was to motivate change in the country. And the way he did it wasn't with power. It was with truth. That's the way Jesus showed us how to overcome power. It wasn't by being more powerful than power. The power is already established. It's already there. The power is in the truth. Praise the Lord. Is anybody with me? Do y'all believe in truth? He is the truth. Speak truth to power. I'm done. I appreciate your attention. Marilyn is going to come and close. Thank you, guys. I love you so much. Well, let's stand tonight and give the Lord a hand clap of praise, and let's thank God for the word of God that we have heard tonight. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the name of the Lord. We thank you tonight, God, for your word, your spirit. Praise the name of the Lord. What a wonderful, wonderful Bible study. I hope that you folks will uh, take what Brian has said tonight and really get a hold of it. Um, If you need to, listen to that Bible study again. There are circumstances, there are situations that, that come to everyone's life, that comes to all of our lives. And, and when he was talking about meeting power with power, that is not always, that is not the best method. But to take truth and apply the truth of the promises of God, the Word of God, apply truth to that situation, and you'll overcome that power every time. And I thank God for that. Thank you, Brian, a wonderful study. And uh, so if you'll remember that, and get a hold of that concept, I guarantee you your life, your future, your destiny, your circumstances can be changed by the truth of God. Praise the Lord. Tonight, go around, greet somebody, tell them uh, you're glad to see them in the house of the Lord. If you don't know who they are, smile real big, shake their hand, and tell them your name. Tell them who you are, and meet them and greet them in Jesus' name. God bless you. You're dismissed in Jesus' name.